Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Dealing with pests can be a pain. But relax, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X dot com. Pushkin On the 20th of July, 1983, Air Canada Flight 143 was being prepared for its 2,000-mile cross-country flight from Montreal to Edmonton. The ground crew loaded her up with the necessary fuel, 22,600 kilograms, according to their calculations. Those calculations were correct, up to a point. But unfortunately, they'd mixed up kilograms and pounds, and not in a good way. Nobody had any idea of this, but the plane took off for a four-hour flight with only half the fuel it needed to get to Edmonton. The plane was now on course to run out of fuel somewhere over Winnipeg. I'm Tim Harford, and you're listening to Cautionary Tales. experiment for us here at Cautionary Tales. As usual, you'll hear a story of disaster, but I'll be joined by an expert to help tell the story and reflect on the lessons. I hope you like it, and I'm confident you will, because my guest today is Matt Parker. Matt Parker is a phenomenon, a stand-up comedian, mathematician, YouTuber, podcaster, and author of the number one bestseller, Humble Pie. And Humble Pie is a funny, nerdy book about the real-life consequences of mathematical mistakes, and it's where I first heard the story of Air Canada Flight 143. Matt Parker, welcome to Cautionary Tales. Thank you, Tim. It's an absolute honour to be your zeroth guest on the show. Zeroth guest. Matt, 
counts in strange ways. Matt, this story's a bit like an onion. It's got layers. Yeah. On the most superficial level, the sort of papery outer layer of the story, if you like. Why did this plane have too little fuel? The very simple reading is they had a unit conversion error. So the people who were meant to be fueling the aircraft saw a number. They assumed it was pounds of fuel when in fact it was kilograms of fuel. And the reason they're even doing this in mass, because if you fill up a car, you don't put the fuel in by mass, you do it by volume. Volume changes based on the ambient temperature. As things warm up, they tend to expand. If they cool down, they tend to shrink. And if you're flying an aircraft, it's important you have the amount of fuel you're supposed to have. And so they made sure instead of using the straightforward volume, they were going to use mass instead. And uh, sadly, it was that attempt for extra precision that opened up the door for this unit conversion error. Yes, you would think they might just stick in a little bit extra just to be sure, but there's limits to the amount of extra fuel you want on a plane because yeah, it's heavy. Yeah, and so th- they even allowed enough extra so that 22,600 kilograms you mentioned, that's 22,300 kilograms for the flying bit, and then they put on the extra 300 kilograms for like taxiing and all, like all the bits that maybe they hadn't factored into the flight. So they were trying to be careful. They were being thorough. They just got the units wrong. What was it about Canada at this particular time that made it particularly vulnerable to a unit conversion error? In Canada, they had just switched. So previously, they were using imperial units, or like the old school, like English style units. And they just swapped over to real units or metric as the rest of us. (laughs) <laughs> I was about to say that as an Australian, you're neutral in this fight, but you're clearly not neutral. <laughs> okay, fine. No, no not, not since the 1960s. I love the quirkiness of the imperial system, but metric is nice and straightforward. Yeah, but if there's one thing that's worse than using imperial units, it's using imperial units when you think you're using metric units or vice versa. Exactly. And it was even obscured by one layer because when they were doing the calculations, they weren't actually doing it in terms of the direct mass, they were using something called the specific gravity, which is like a measure of the density of the fuel. And so they used that to get back to the volume that they then had to put into the plane. And because there was this extra one layer of an opaque bit of putting it into a slightly different way of looking at it, they didn't realize that the units behind the specific gravity were based on kilograms, and they assumed that they were based the old way on pounds. There's more maths than I had anticipated in filling up a plane. Um, yeah. Okay, this is slightly unnerving. But it, I mean, it's not just planes that suffer from unit conversion errors. Your book, Humble Pie, has a whole chapter full of them. I mean, do you have any favourites? Well, this plane is now my favourite. You said you only came across it because you were reading the book. I only came across it researching the book. Prior to that, it was the um, Mars Climate Orbiter spacecraft that NASA launched in 1998. That was my favorite unit conversion era. And that's partly because a lot of people know about it. It is this urban legend of when NASA got the maths wrong. And partly this is something very delightful about NASA, like the mascot of science and precision and achievement coming undone because of a unit conversion error. It was actually a bit more subtle than that, wasn't it? I think NASA were using metric, but the supplier was using imperial or old school pound. Yeah, it was uh, Lockheed Martin was the uh, contractor. And like you said, NASA used metric 
they're scientists, they're engineers, they're going to use the most efficient, most optimal units. And so everything they were doing was in metric. And in their documentation that they gave to their contractors, it stipulated you're going to do this in metric. Now, the kind of common understanding of this is when the Mars Climate Orbiter got to Mars, they had to calculate how far above the surface it was so they could put it into a nice, neat, stable orbit. And people go, oh, isn't that the one where NASA thought it was in feet, but it was actually in meters or vice versa. And then they got the altitude wrong because they were measuring the distance incorrectly. And to be fair, to this day, if you look at altitude of things like aircraft, it's given in feet, which in one sense is a nice bit of error correction. Because if you hear a number in aviation and it's feet, you know it's in the vertical direction. And if you hear a number and it's kilometers or meters, you know it's in the horizontal direction. And so it's a bit of redundancy in terms of the directions encoded in the units that are used, which is maybe the one time I will concede that's an interesting use for imperial units. But that's not the case here. First time I've ever heard you defend their use. I know, I know. Well, defend is a strong word, Tim. (laughs) But actually, that's not what NASA did. They didn't confuse feet and meters and kind of just smash this thing into the surface of Mars because they didn't know how high it was. It is a much more subtle error. It's always more complicated than that. In this case, As they're flying the spacecraft from the Earth to Mars, there's a big flywheel on board because in space, there's nothing to push against if you want to change your direction. But if you have a spinning mass, you get the gyroscopic effect and you can push against something spinning to reorientate your spacecraft. The issue with that is sometimes your flywheel is going incredibly fast and you have to have what the NASA scientists uh, have deemed a angular momentum desaturation event which is just slowing down the flywheel. But to do that, you've got to fire the thrusters, like the little steering rockets on the spacecraft, to keep it pointing in roughly the same direction as you're slowing down your gyroscope. And those little thruster firings slightly change the trajectory of the spacecraft on its way to Mars. So you want to keep track of those. This was an external system done by Lockheed Martin. And they've got a little program that just logged every single time the thrusters fired how much force they were firing, and therefore later on, NASA could calculate the actual trajectory when it gets to Mars by factoring in all these little thruster firings. And NASA said very, very clearly, please write these down using Newtons, the proper metric unit for force. And Lockheed Martin wrote them down as pounds force. Pounds force, it's a ratio of 4.45-ish, very similar. It's pounds. Pounds are kilos all over again, really. And this is the kind of thing that will smash your spacecraft straight into Mars. Oh, yeah, because they assumed that the firings were in newtons when they'd been written down in pounds force, they figured they were going to come in at an altitude of between 150 and 170 kilometers above the surface of Mars. They actually came in at 57 kilometers above the surface of Mars, much, much closer, which means even though there's not a lot of atmosphere on Mars, there is some. The extra drag of being that much lower slowed the spacecraft down a lot more than they expected, which meant that it fell out of the sky. It deorbited very ungracefully, and uh, billions of US dollars of spacecraft slammed into the surface of Mars because of one unit conversion error. I wanted to ask about a really old conversion error, which pleasingly rhymes with NASA. So it was Vassa. Vassa is this ship? What's the, oh, Vassa. What's the story with yeah. that? This was a ship in Sweden that was launched in the 1600s, in uh, the year 1628. And it was a, a magnificent, massive ship. 
They put a lot of cannons on the top of it, which might have been part of the problem, because almost immediately in its maiden voyage, it toppled over. At the time, they're like, it was top heavy. We put too many cannons on the top. The ship was too tall. And that caused it almost as soon as it left the harbor to just fall over on its side and sink. And it wasn't actually found until the 1950s. And in 1961, they dredged it up and they put it in a museum, which if you're ever in Stockholm, I highly recommend you go to the Vasa Museum. The ship was incredibly well preserved. So well preserved that some people had a good look at it and thought, that looks a little asymmetric. Like the hull is not as symmetric as you would hope a hull would be on a ship. Yeah, I mean, that is a property I tend to associate with ships. Exactly. Everyone likes a good symmetric ship as, as, as a rule of thumb. So uh, people looked at it and went, that's not as symmetric as it should be. As the theory now is, when it was built, it was built slightly asymmetrically because people were using different units. Specifically, people were mixing up Swedish feet with the Amsterdam feet. And we know this because we've found in all the other bits of paraphernalia that came with the ship, rulers that we assume were used when building the ship. And they found both Swedish feet rulers and Amsterdam feet rulers, which are different lengths. So a foot in Amsterdam is different to a foot in Sweden. They've even got different numbers of inches. A Swedish foot is divided up into 12 inches and an Amsterdam foot divided up into 11 inches. And of course, the inches are then different. So the theory now is when their ship was built in the 1600s and people are like, oh, make it to this many inches, this many feet, people are using different rulers at a different lengths divided into different numbers of subdivisions and they've got some, some bits off. And so the ship ended up a little bit wonky, sadly for them and great for us because it preserved this incredible warship. Uh, it toppled over almost as soon as it set sail. So let's get back to Air Canada Flight 143. I flipped over the page in your book, and almost the first thing that happens is it lands in Ottawa. For some reason, they did this before they embarked on the, the real journey, which is 2,000 miles. And so I thought, oh, it's a fake out. Matt has faked me out. They land in Ottawa. They check the fuel. They figure out there's been a you know, near miss, nearly fatal error, and they top it up, and it's all fine. Not quite. So there are... Layers and layers of mistakes that were occurring. And it was a series of very unfortunate mistakes which caused the plane to take off with the wrong amount of fuel. But then, a stroke of good luck, they had to land early because they were changing passages in Ottawa. And whenever you land, you have to redo the fuel calculations. But um, as people may have realized, based on the percentage through this podcast we are at the moment, that's not the end of the story. They redid the calculations and made exactly the same unit conversion error. They once again did the calculations based on pounds instead of doing it based on kilograms. And they're like, yep, that checks out. That's the exact amount of fuel we need. We will carry on with no additional fuel. Well done, whoever fueled this plane in the first place. So there we are. Air Canada Flight 143 has taken off not once, but twice with the wrong amount of fuel, with the calculations all messed up and facing imminently the fate of running out of fuel over the middle of Canada. And after these messages, Matt Parker and I will explain what happened next. Uh, 
As a loyal listener to cautionary tales, you probably consider yourself pretty smart, and you are. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the Customer Experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix may not be able to rewrite history or take on society's problems, but they can help you solve one of the peskiest problems at home. Pests. You know, the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, even the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalised pest care that puts you in control. 
Their expertly trained technicians know your local pests the best. So even though they don't know in-depth world history, you can bet they know how to make your pest problem history. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. So we've been following Air Canada Flight 143. It's taken off from Montreal. It has pounds of fuel instead of kilograms of fuel. That is not remotely enough fuel. It then has a second chance to fix this because it lands after a short hop lands in Ottawa. They do the same calculation. They make the same mistake. They say, yep, there's plenty of fuel in there because they're confusing pounds and kilograms. Uh, There is not plenty of fuel in there. And the plane takes off again. And now it's really in trouble because now it is going to fly 2000 miles. People listening to this will be screaming, why didn't they check the fuel gauge? Does a plane not have a fuel gauge? My car has a fuel gauge. Surely a plane has a fuel gauge. So what's going on with the fuel gauge? I mean, a plane does have a fuel gauge. In fact, It's kind of got a double fuel gauge because redundancy is the motto of aviation because, you know, something goes wrong. It goes very wrong. And so they had a gauge that shows the fuel and they've got like a unit that then does the calculations to work out how much fuel. And they got sensors in the fuel tanks that are measuring how much fuel and they're all joined together. To give you extra redundancy, there's more than one sensor in the tank. There's more than one link between the sensors and the unit that does the calculation. And then you've got the display on the um, gauge. And one flight prior to this flight, so when the plane was actually in Edmonton, ready to come over to Montreal to start this fateful flight, they realized there was an issue with the sensors because the gauge had stopped working. And the technician realized if you unplug just one of the connections, if you remove that layer of redundancy, they starts working again. And they're like, oh, that's interesting. And in theory, that should be fine because they just label, they write, I've removed this because it wasn't working. You now have to do a manual check as your layer of redundancy because we've removed it from the sensors. You've now got to do it manually. But this is where the chain of mistakes, the layers of this onion really kick off because there was just one thing after another that went wrong. So that technician poorly labeled what they had done. They just wrote faulty or something to that effect. They then didn't write it very clearly in the logbook. They then didn't explain it very well to the pilot. The pilot understood it as being an ongoing problem. And it was always the case that you had to do the manual fuel check, which is like literally putting a stick in the tank to see how much fuel there is. When they finished the next flight, the pilot then badly communicated this to the next pilot. And the technician handover was equally bad. Like at any point, someone could have realized what was going on. But the communication didn't work. And so the new pilot was told don't panic. As long as you do the manual check, it's fine. Separately, a different technician's popped in, realized it's unconnected, connected it back in again, rediscovered the same issue the previous technician had, left it plugged in, went off to order the new part. The new pilot sees the old label, which is now irrelevant, saying faulty, but it's plugged back in again, which means none of the gauges are working. All of this just comes together as the pilot is sitting there looking at this label looking at the blank gauge and everything they've been told just happens to line up and they think, oh, it's fine. As long as we do the manual check, we can still fly, even though the gauge is completely dead without realizing that is very much not what they should be doing. So I did once run out of fuel 
And I fortunately, I was on the ground in a car, but I ran out of fuel because there'd been a problem with the pump. The pump kept clicking out as I was refueling in a way that indicated that the tank was full. Yep. But the fuel gauge was showing that the tank was nearly empty. And I just assumed that the pump was correct and the fuel gauge was wrong. So I thought, huh, got a broken fuel gauge. And off I drove and uh, I was not full. So, um, but yeah, as I say, fortunately, I was on the ground. You're on the ground. But imagine all that happens and you're like, huh, you know what? I'll just get someone at the fuel station to double check for me. And they put a stick in your fuel tank. They do the calculation. They're like, oh, no, 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 no. You've got loads of fuel, but they've made a unit conversion error. And that parallel mistake has reinforced your series of mistakes and misunderstandings. And then you drive off without enough fuel. And there's actually a, um, a theory in accident, well, I guess mm, mistake mitigation called the Swiss cheese principle of avoiding disasters, where you imagine each check, each bit of redundancy, each fail safe as being like a barrier to stop mistakes from getting through. But no barrier is perfect. Some of them are operated by humans and we can make mistakes. Some of them are run by code or machines and they make mistakes. And so each barrier has, has a few holes in it, like a slice of Swiss cheese. But you, you just hope that if you've got enough slices of cheese, one of them will stop the mistake from getting through. But every now and then, your cheese holes just line up and a mistake will make it through every single layer, every single barrier, every single failsafe, and will make it out the far side and become a disaster. And that's what happened with flight 143. Just slice of cheese after slice of cheese had a hole in the wrong spot and the mistake made it through undetected. And so the plane runs out of fuel somewhere over Winnipeg. Yep. Um, this can't have been a happy moment for the pilots. It was a startling moment. I mean, the first indication they had that something was up was a uh, error noise in the cockpit that no one had heard before. They had to look it up in the manual to see what was going on. Like, this came out of nowhere. And suddenly they realise they're out of fuel. And this plane was one of the first aircraft that Air Canada had brought on which used avionics. And so there's a lot more electronics than normal. And suddenly all of it goes dead. The engines are out and they're coasting. They're coasting a Boeing 767. There were still some very basic rudimentary controls for the aircraft. So they were able to glide it to some extent. And the reason why this isn't a tale of, you know, absolute disaster, the reason why there is a sufficiently happy ending is the pilot, before they became like an airliner pilot for Air Canada. In their previous career, they were a glider pilot. So the pilot had sufficient gliding experience and they were able to glide this Boeing 767 to a disused military runway in a very small town called Gimli. And they were able to glide this aircraft uh, just over 40 miles and safely, safely, eh, it was abrupt. It's not actually a glider, is it? It's not built to do this. No. No, it's still going to land hard. And they couldn't bring up, like, the landing gear and all this. Like, they had so few controls. They basically went straight into the tarmac. And they just, like, the nose went into it. And they just slid along, I guess, sparks going everywhere. But there was just enough friction to bring the aircraft to a halt before the far end of the runway. Much to the relief of the 61 passengers and eight crew members on board. And much to the surprise of... The yes. people currently using the airfield. And much to the, the big surprise to the people who were camping at the other end of the runway. So there were people there. They were on a go-karting weekend. And I guess they booked the runway to drive go-karts around. And the crazy thing about a Boeing 767 once the engines are turned off, it's pretty quiet 
And so they had no idea what was happening until they just hear this almighty wham. They all look around. There's a jumbo jet sliding up this, uh, they were told, disused runway towards them, stopping just before it got to the go-karts. So, I mean, oh my goodness. Once again, things could have gone very wrong. But at the last second, thank goodness, everyone was okay. No one, there, were, there was no loss of life in the entire situation, which is just amazing. I imagine a few people lost, lost a few hairs. Things were lost. Yeah. There's a note in your book that they recreated this scenario in a simulator for other pilots, and it did not always go well. No. So they, obviously, there's a big investigation afterwards to work out <laughs> what went wrong and how and why. And when I was writing Humble Pie, a lot of my time was spent reading through these old... Um, you know, investigations, because they make it public to an extent. And so in there, they talk about the fact that they got other pilots and put them in flight simulators in the same situation to see what would happen. And every time they crashed, no other pilot was a, in a simulator was able to glide a powerless 767 that distance and land it safely. So they were very lucky that they had the pilot they did with the experience the pilot had and was able to land this plane safely. It was, I mean, it very easily could have gone a different way. Yeah. One of the other unit conversion errors in your book is a Celsius Fahrenheit thing on a BBC news story. Yep. And they were trying to figure out what some scientists or somebody had basically said that there might be the following temperature change because of climate change. And here it is in Celsius or centigrade. Here it is in Fahrenheit. And the BBC just kept jumping backwards and forwards with really very radical different answers to this question of, of how to convert between Celsius and Fahrenheit. They kept changing their mind. People just couldn't settle on the right answer. Yeah, thankfully, people log changes to news sites. So we can watch as it went backwards and forwards. And, we, and then, you're right, there must have been a shouting match. There must have been team 3.6 degrees and team 36 degrees because those were the two Fahrenheit's that the news story kept flipping between. Two degrees Celsius is 36 degrees Fahrenheit, and two degrees Celsius is 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, depending on if that's an absolute temperature or a change in temperature. And it's easy to make this mistake because things like kilograms and pounds, they both start at zero. You've got zero mass, and then you have some mass. And meters and feet both start at zero. Doesn't make a difference if you're talking about the difference in two people's height or anything, it changes versus absolute, same deal. Celsius and Fahrenheit start at different points. Their zeros are at different places. And their increments are different. Like if you're outside and it's two degrees Celsius, actual temperature, and you look at a thermometer, it would say two degrees Celsius, 36 degrees Fahrenheit, absolute temperature. But if it then went up another two degrees the temperature wouldn't go up another 36 degrees Fahrenheit. It would go up another 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit because that's the relative ratio between the increments. So you've got to factor in where they start and how much they change. And because those numbers look very similar, I can imagine why someone like looked at the news story and went, oh, they've put, they've put 3.6, it should be 36 they, they put the decimal point in the wrong place. Or, or I'm guessing if you type this into Google or, or a similar website and ask for the conversion, you know, what is two degrees centigrade yep. in Fahrenheit? I mean, the answer to that question is, is ambiguous. But Google is probably going to return 36 Fahrenheit because that is the most common sort of instance people thinking about the weather. 
Yeah, the vast majority of people are looking for the absolute temperature. That's what Google's going to give you back. But this was a percentage change in global warming. Should have been 3.6. Eventually, their solution was just not to give it in Fahrenheit, which is a solution I wholeheartedly agree with. <laughs> not not the just avoiding the problem, but just just give it in Celsius and move on. As a journalist, it is surprising how often you can solve a problem by just deleting the sentence you're struggling with, ideally before you hit publish, but, you know, doesn't always work out like that. So the story, as we've mentioned, comes from your book, Humble Pie, and it's one of dozens and dozens of stories. Now, Humble Pie is not your first book about fun maths. Why did you turn to the topic of mistakes? I mean... Because I've previously written about kind of enjoying math, doing it, having some fun with it. And I thought, you know what? Math, it's, it's wonderful. It's lovely. We play with it. I think it's great. But we do use it in a lot of critical situations. And we use it like it's behind the scenes in our modern society. And we never really notice it. And so I thought, you know what? If I write a book about math mistakes, I can tick two boxes simultaneously. Partly, it means people want to read it. I mean, people love things going wrong, as this podcast is a testament to, right? And we can learn learn from these, you know, terrible situations. And so I was like, okay, that'll be a good hook to get people reading a book about mathematics. And because I'm telling stories of maths going wrong, it's an excellent excuse to first of all have to set up what the maths is and why we're using it. So it, it justifies me writing about all these fantastic situations where maths makes our modern society possible, which, which I found deeply pleasing. One more thought, Matt. Air Canada have made this mistake twice. NASA have made this mistake. 16th century Swedish shipwrights have made this mistake. The BBC have made this mistake. I mean, this sort of problem seems to be absolutely all around us. And it's the kind of thing that does bring planes out of the sky and causes bridges to collapse. Does it it make you nervous knowing that we're, we're trusting all of these people all around us to get these things right and they sometimes don't? It, it does and it doesn't. So... The underlying issue is, as humans, we're not naturally good at mathematics. And that's kind of reassuring. So everyone has ever struggled with maths or found it difficult. We all do. Everyone finds maths difficult. The human brain doesn't do maths like uh, natively. It's got to learn it. But uh, thankfully... Yeah, that's not reassuring at all. I, I'm, not, I'm not reassured by the thought that the people refueling planes can't do maths. That's a valid point. Allow me to continue. Um, and, but what I, do, what I do like is... And, and I'll, 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 I'll try and land this with a nice, happy conclusion that because we have maths, we can do so much more than our brains can do intuitively. We don't have to design, like we don't have to make a building by eyeballing it and like super over-engineering it. We can actually do the mathematics and work out exactly what we need and how it's going to work. And so, you know, using maths, we can do far more than the human brain was ever designed to do. The cost, however is that we are beyond our intuition and we have to do the maths and do it very carefully and double check everything. And so I like the fact we can achieve so much more because we can use maths. I accept that this is the cost it comes with. And I'm also reassured all the stories I found, obviously they're very spectacular. They're very interesting. There's a lot to learn. I love the fact now students at school are told, pay attention to units. Otherwise these things can happen. They are the exception. The vast majority of the time, We've got all these redundancies and checks in place, and they work. And so these stories are interesting because they are such freak occurrences they manage to slip through. And uh, thankfully, with a very statistic-minded head, I can still happily fly, knowing that the vast majority of the time, it works fine. Matt, what else are you working on at the moment, and, and where else can people find your stuff? 
Oh my goodness. Well, I'm I'm still uh, writing away on a new book, which will be out at some point in the distant future. Um, I, you know what? I don't think it's been announced, but it'll be a book about trigonometry. So there you are. That's a uh, Cautionary Tales exclusive a trigonometry book coming up at some, some point when uh, I finish writing it. If you'd like to know when, you sound a lot like my editor. Uh, around that, I'm still doing a lot of work, uh, obviously, on YouTube. And, um, and live work's picking up again. I just, actually, I just filmed the stand-up special version of Humble Pie. So I was on tour with the, the show that goes with the book uh, in 2019 into 2020. We had obviously had to delay and cancel a lot of those shows. And we only just filmed the stand-up special a month or two ago. And that will be out at some point around September. So if people want to see the live stage version of all of these, uh, if you head over to standupmaths.com, that's my website where everything happens. And if you go onto youtube.com slash standupmaths, you'll see all of my videos as and when they come out. Uh, Matt Parker, thank you very much for joining us on Cautionary Tales. Tim, it's been my absolute pleasure. Cautionary Tales is written by me, Tim Harford, with Andrew Wright. It's produced by Ryan Dilley, with support from Courtney Garino and Emily Vaughan. The sound design and original music is the work of Pascal Wise. It features the voice talents of Ben Crow, Melanie Guttridge, Stella Harford and Rufus Wright. The show also wouldn't have been possible without the work of Mia LaBelle, Jacob Weisberg, Heather Fain, John Schnars, Julia Barton, Carly Migliori, Eric Sandler, Royston Beserve, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano, Daniela Lacan, and Maya Koenig. Cautionary Tales is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review. Tell a friend, tell two friends. And if you want to hear the show ads-free and listen to four exclusive Cautionary Tales shorts, then sign up for Pushkin Plus on the show page in Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm slash plus. Dealing with pests can be a pain. But relax, Terminix can help, because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X dot com. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards.
See you there. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.